Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Maine. Hope you're doing well. Pleased to be joined today by Rolo Tomasi. Now, he is the author of The Rational Male, The Rational Male Preventive Medicine, and The Rational Male Positive Masculinity. And you can find more of Rolo's work at therationalmail.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at forward slash rational mail. Great conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. I believe if I go to the table of contents or the index, the word that comes up the most often is hypergamy. And this is a word that, you know, we all know the word misogyny and we all know the cliche of the man who trades in his middle-aged wife for a young hottie and so on. We all know that. But hypergamy is one of these phenomenon that's kind of like the physics of uh, sexual dynamics, which people don't really seem to know about at all. And it should be central to our discussion. So I wonder if you could give a brief introduction to this issue or question. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you asked because um, when I was just at the 21 convention back in September, I gave my first kind of public talk. And the first, I did two talks. The first one was about hypergamy. And um, I titled it, you know, hypergamy micro to macro. And I think that we can trace women's hyper the the dynamic of women's hypergamy um from you know as as basic as the ovulatory cycle and ovulatory shift all the way up to where we are right now with uh you know hillary clinton trying to become the first female president and you can you can trace from you know very simple beginnings very biological beginnings through personal and psychological dynamics and then up into uh, individual and social dynamics and then into political dynamics and even religious dynamics after that that are all founded on hypergamy now, a lot of people want to say and and i always lock horns with these guys is that they always want to say that hypergamy should just mean uh, a woman's tendency to marry up and I, I really feel that that doesn't do justice to hypergamy right now, simply because it's so much more than that. And it's, yeah, yes, it is that, but that's the sociological definition of that. And so when I sort of, when I came across that and I started studying um, evolutionary psychology and I, my, just so you know, my, my degree, I got two degrees. I have one in uh, a bachelor of fine arts and I have a, a bachelor of science in uh, behavioral psychology. So when I was in one, and you probably read this in the, in the introduction of my book is, when I was in those classes, uh, it was when I was writing, um, uh, kind of a late bloomer as far as my university experience is concerned, but I was writing this stuff and I was seeing a lot of the same dynamics that I would see um, as far as behavioral psychology being used by women on guys. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of strange. Um, you know, and well, everything like every, which accents a woman's figure, the, the lipstick right. which denotes a sexual mm -hmm. attraction, this is all based mm -hmm. upon a man's being drawn towards youth and fertility and right. even right. features being markers of good uh, – so, so of good genes. So, so women, mm -hmm. of course, are very aware of what drives – uh, a oh, man's sure. sexual desire, sure. and they're constantly using it, not all, but in general, the, the whole makeup industry, the, the fashion industry, uh, all of that is strongly designed to, to, to know deeply what attracts a man to a woman and then manipulate it uh, mm -hmm. and, and put in hyper signals towards that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think men really kind of get that same thing because they yeah. listen to women and say, well, what do you want? You know, if you're hunting someone, right. as you point out, you want, you're hunting an animal, right. you study as parents, say to women, what do you want? Well, I want romance. I want flowers. I want a man who listens. I want a man who supports me and so on. And then into this lovely little kid's garden of fluffy animals and sentimentality strides Fifty Shades of Grey, which is right. the most popular novel, if I remember right. rightly, in the history of the planet. I think it's soon to outsell the Bible. And uh, that is what women want. That is the hyperstimulation for women. And he's not nice. And he does not romantic. And he doesn't listen to her. And he orders her around. And he makes a science contract so he can beat the crap out of her. And women love that stuff. So what women say versus what they actually buy and respond to, complete worlds apart. Well, I have a, I've got a post and it's also a chapter in the book um, called uh, The Medium is the Message. And I think that a lot of guys want to be, we're, we're deductive creatures. We're problem solving guys. Okay. When men want to say two and two equals four and they want to find the shortest, you know, point between two distances to, to you know, solve a problem. And so 
what guys generally do is they apply that towards their towards their game, okay? And what their game is is, is whatever is going to um, get them to, from the point of not being intimate with a woman to being intimate with a woman. And so most guys follow that same deductive reasoning. If uh, you know what do women want? Well, let's go find out what women want. I will do what women want. You know, this plus this plus this equals this. And what they're <laughs> what they're really not understanding is that. The, the, as far as when it comes to hypergamy, there's really sort of the arousal side and then there's the attraction side. And they're all, all about the attraction side, but they know nothing about the arousal side or, or vice versa. So it could be they know everything about the arousal side and know nothing about the attraction side of, of hypergamy. Um, but I think that this deductive problem solving is where most guys sort of get, get themselves into trouble. Now, of course, on the medium is the message. It's just what you've been talking about is watch what a woman does and not what a woman is saying that she wants. Um, if, if she's, you know, uh, if she's ignoring your phone calls or if it's, if it takes you, you know, uh, if she's making you wait for sex or if it's this kind of stuff, that's the message. That's not, <laughs> that is the message. That's, that's what's being told to you. And it's not what she's saying is being told to you. So there's, there's kind of this duplicity of, of messages in there, but there's also, I think what is this, the joke is that the pickup artists um, give women what they say that they never want. <laughs> they, they pretend to have what women say that they never want. <laughs> well, this is a funny thing, too, because at least biologically speaking, for me, at least, Roland, let me know what you think, of course. For me, biologically speaking, there are two perspectives to males and females and mothers and fathers. Mothers face the children and fathers face the world. That's kind of the way it works because moms are home raising the children and fathers are out there facing the world in order to get resources to bring to the family because women were disabled by childbirth and by child raising. Basically, they would hit puberty, get pregnant and die eventually, you know, maybe from pregnancy, maybe from old age if they were lucky. And so the idea when we have this situation or the system, biologically speaking, for because we have this ridiculously slow to develop children, I mean, it's, it's right. absolutely insane, like mountains decay faster than children uh, grow up sometimes. And mm -hmm. so men have to be out there facing the world and women have to be uh, facing their children and, and raising the children. So the idea that the man goes to the woman and faces her goes against, I think, the basic biological imperative. So a woman is kind of saying, pay attention to me. And it's a shit test. Because if you oh, pay yeah. attention to her, <laughs> she doesn't want you. Because if you're paying attention to her, you're not out there fighting with the other men to get the resources she needs to raise her children. So pay attention to me. It's like this big test. And if you pay attention, she might put you in the beta orbit, but she's not going to put mm -hmm. you in her bed. Right. Well, I mean, that's and that's the key is that uh, I like I'm glad you said that, because in the second book, I go into that quite a bit about the hierarchies of, of love, really, or how how um, um, the natural hierarchy was from man to woman, woman to child. And then, you know, child back to mother, mother back up to up to uh, to father. Um, and we're getting away from that right now. And if you want to like you were just saying, um, our natural evolved propensities is for that is for that particular uh, you know traditional gender roles is basically what that is, and we can even see that in egalitarian countries right now where, given the opportunity to have complete you know uh, equality of opportunity, men and women opt for traditional gender roles in those countries because that's what they're comfortable with and that's what we're evolved to you know to be you know to. Get from point A to point B. Well, and just, um, just to point out what a mind frack that is for a feminist, the more free a country becomes, the more men and women settle into traditional gender roles, men working with stuff, women working with people, uh, and, and so on. And that, of course, goes very much – feminism, of course, is a sort of set of its socialism with granny panties. It's basically uh, the idea that you can impose an ideology and somehow deny evolution. It's weird in a way because there are some Christians who deny evolution but accept that men and women have natures that have evolved to be differently or to be different. But most on the left accept evolution but then deny that there have been different evolutionary pressures on men than on women. And I just the, – the fact that Christians accept the nature of man a lot more easily than a lot of leftists and socialists do is kind of funny in a way because they need that blank slate so that they can create this massive right. uh, oven of social experimentation. Well, you see, it's a, it, it, again, it, go, it goes back to what our evolved propensities were. We evolved, to, you know, women evolved to be hypergamous. That hypergamy then creates male dominance hierarchies that come from that hypergamy. And so 
you know, we, we can complain all day long about a patriarchal um, society, but it is actually women who are creating that patriarchal society because of hypergamy. So, and, and that's I've, why we I've have a civilization, about, yeah. right? It's why we, oh, we exactly. have a civilization yeah. because the more resources you get, the higher quality female you get in mm -hmm. general. And so we mm -hmm. have a civilization uh, because women choose higher performing men. And because we are selected to be higher performing, we end up with very high performing uh, men uh, and a civilization. And when that is interfered with, when women can gain resources from the state rather than from men, you end up with a growth not of civilization, which is in generally the minimizing of the state, but you end up with women then hypergamying with the state. And then you end up not with the growth of male competence and power in civilization. You end up with a growth of state power largely through debt, which is catastrophic in the long run. And what you will see in that situation is you will see men adapt to that. So when the sexual revolution occurred, um, you know, gosh, what, in the 60s now, the mid-60s, you will see now we have the free love generation. And I think a lot of people don't understand this, but the free love kind of thing has been around for a long time. There's been other uh, times in different time periods where the free love thing was going on as well. In the 60s, that's just the most recent version of that. But what we're seeing is exactly what you're saying there is like, is women can now be in control of, of the birthing. And what do we see? Because they are have almost unilateral control over, uh, over their own birthing process, we see them move to a very unregulated, unfettered form of hypergamy. And like what you're just saying is that now we have resource transfer from men to women, and it's taking over that the uh, – I'll just try to be nice about this. You know, the alpha seed and beta need or alpha fucks and beta bucks – it's taking over the beta buck side of things where they don't have to worry about it, whether it's through the, the um, whether it's through the government or it's, re or it's resource transfer or it's the law or it's having, you know, domestic violence laws favor women over men. Um, it's that kind of insurance and that kind of a, a certainty of security for that woman and what is left for her. Well, there's only the alpha fuck side of things that are left for her. So what are men going to adapt to be? They're going to adapt to be that guy who's going to get with the higher quality woman. So now the competition in the male dominance hierarchy is not so much based on, you know, having a good job, being a nice guy and all the stuff that was great right before the sexual revolution. Now it's how good can I look? Um, you know, can I get six pack abs? Can I... Um, you know, can I attract and can I appeal to the arousal side of that woman more so than than the security side of things? And I think really that's one of the reasons why you're seeing things like Me Too and Time's Up right now, because men are adapting to be more sexual and to be more part of, you know, be qualifying themselves, I should say, for that arousal side rather than the attraction side, which is the security based side. Of things. Well, and it's terrible because. As a, as a man, this goes back to a Strindberg play I read in college <laughs> decades ago, that the woman always knows the child is hers, but the man does not in general. Right. Again, in right. a more – like in Japan, you don't know because it's a racially homogenous oh, yeah. society. In wow. other cultures, you, you might have some, uh, some clue. But to me, understanding that issue, that a man must ensure to the very best of his ability and society requires this – occur. Because men go get resources in order to um, have children. But if the resources are being applied to a child that's not from their own genes, it's not their sperm child, that is the most catastrophic mistake a man can make. Like the worst mistake a woman can make in the past before the welfare state is to get married to a man who then leaves her. When, when she's had children, because then no other man wants to be with her. She's got to rely on charity. I mean, her life is ruined, which is why there used to be a big vetting process. And you, you wouldn't just go on Tinder. Like you, you'd have to have, you'd vouched for by the priest, by the community, by the family, the extended family. You investigate this guy's family. You look at his history because that was the worst. So the worst thing the woman can do is to marry a man who splits. And the worst thing a man can do is raise children that aren't his own. And this fundamental problem is one of the reasons why there is, of course, no sex before marriage, no hymen, no diamond. It's why there were chastity belts. It's why, because, you know, as you point out, war widows, right? Men go away. Women will yeah. uh, have, yeah. oh, yes, I'll it was that time huh? you came back on leave, honey, really. That's why yes. he's got red hair and you're a brunette. So right. to me, this Wait. issue of raising another man's children has now been mm -hmm. thoroughly institutionalized in that you and I, as taxpayers, are now paying to raise other men's children through the welfare state. Now, we used to be able to do that voluntarily through charity, but charity was very restrictive and nobody really wanted a very social shaming to be on. Being forced to pay for other men's children 
is just astoundingly horrifying. And it could only happen in a society which completely devalued male perspectives. Well, I was going to say, as uh, I have a post that just I, I wrote it probably about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's called The War on Paternity. And it's exactly what you're talking about right now. And to, to sort of give you a build up to this, just what you were saying before, prior to the sexual revolution, we had checks and balances on hypergamy. So consequently, back in the day, it was very shameful for a woman to have a child out of wedlock. I mean, even as late as what, the 50s and the 60s, you know, up to mid 60s, anyways, it was very shameful for a woman. Oh, she'd have to go away. She'd have to go away and pretend to have an abortion, or Mm -hmm. it would be pretended to be an oopsie child pre-menopause for the mom. Exactly. So we had these checks and balances, both socially, religiously, um, just and culturally. Just depends on on what the culture was. But there was always, even I would say, a good portion of traditional religions were were very much about keeping that hypergamy in check because there's a, a subconscious understanding of that that's what's going to happen if we don't keep this in check now what did we do when we when we gave women the unilateral control to birth well now we have you know uh women what's the uh, the birth rate for unmarried unmarried uh, out of wedlock births is 42 percent right now um we're looking at the rise of abortion again what you more abortions uh, occur because because of this um, and it was supposed to be the other way around. We were supposed to be able to have free love and not have to worry about, you know, men wouldn't have to worry about their burden of performance anymore because, you know, I love you and you love me and all of these horrible, you know, we've all raised, we've risen ourselves above the, you know, the evolutionary animals right now. And we, you know, it's it's what counts on the inside and it's not what's on the outside, which is complete horseshit. But <laughs> what I was going to say is that in this, what we're seeing right now is, um, is a war on paternity, and it's exactly again to exactly what you just talked about. And um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are some studies, and I I, I got these when I was in actually in college. I'm just remembering them right now. But there's these studies about um, they would do these experiments with these men who would have to go and pick up their children from school, and it was like a parochial school, so they were all the kids are dressed up in the same outfits. So the only way you can identify those children was by looking at their faces, and it was facial recognition, right? And the fathers of those children could find those kids faster than the mothers could find those children. Sure. Yeah. And I'm telling you, because that is, that's part of the evolved part. It's that, it's that important to men to know that their progeny is their progeny. And it's and weird we're too, because right now, yeah. if there have been studies, I, I, I still find it staggering that the numbers could be this high, but there have been studies, um, I remember, I think it was in Wales some decades ago, a teacher uh, asked uh, the students to do blood tests, like blood samples, and try to match up their parents' blood type with their blood type. And a third of the kids were not their father's kids. And this has happened yeah. in wartime <laughs> as well. So I don't know, let's say it's 10 or 20% or whatever it is, right, that, that, that men mm-hmm. are raising children that aren't their own. And this is not talked about. And in mm-hmm. England, you have to get the mother's permission to even get a blood test to find out if you're the father. Now. Yeah. Uh, so who knows? France, let's, say, France, let's, say, well. let's say it's 10%. Let's say it's 5%, whatever it is. But can you imagine what would happen if 5 or 10% of babies were switched for moms yeah. in the hospital? Yeah. Like people would go absolutely insane. People would go yeah. completely mental and say, what? The, the woman would say, I'm raising a child, not even my own, because the hospital made a mistake and switched the baby with right. someone else's 5% of the time, 10% of the time. But the fact that men really need to know that the children are their own is barely even talked about. Of course, as you know, uh, uh, young men who've been victims of um, rape by women have been forced to pay uh, child support. Right. So men's perspective not being part of social calculations is something really chilling. <laughs> like Once you really see it, it is quite a, a, a brain explosion. Well, I, I think that's interesting because, again, in that post, I was making the case that there's a war on paternity right now. It's sort of a social war on paternity. Um, we hold up men who uh, take the responsibility of you know, parental investment for another man. That guy who marries a single mother with kids, that guy we hold up and say, oh, he's great. We, you know, he's a hero and all that you know, for, for a while. But we don't look down on that guy. We, we look at the guy who, who steps up and, and, uh, and wants to be, the, you know, basically be a proactive cuckold is what I call it, is um, there's, there's the cuckoldry that happens before, you know, before the marriage and there's cuckoldry that happens after the marriage. So before the marriage, maybe the woman has had sex with her alpha lovers and has had kids with them. And then by the time she gets to be between the ages of, say, 29 and 31, 
then that's when she's looking for that beta guy who's going to be the good prospect and it's going to be the, the guy who's going to invest, help her raise these kids that aren't his kids. And so we hold that guy up as a hero. We look at like uh, paternity right now um, in, in a social aspect as we, we try to downplay that. Um, I was just on a, a, a interview with uh, Pat Campbell not too long ago and we were talking about this. And we we're talking about the CNN story that was just out uh, last week about how they're trying to normalize cuckoldry. I mean, real in your face, live, you know, on a, why, is, why is cuckoldry born such a big thing right now? Well, what it is, is a de devaluing of that, of the importance of men having that investment or knowing that that's their kid. We see that in, in the laws, like you're talking about. We see that in the DNA, uh, you know, making it more and more difficult to get DNA testing. I would I'm, I'm going to, this is conjecture here, but I really think that once the male birth control pill comes out, I really think that feminism and feminists are really going to fight that because it's going to take that. It's going to remove that control of birthing and hypergamy. It's going to put it back into the control of men. Well, and this is another conflict in the narrative that really began to have me look at what was really going on, Rollo, which is this idea that women are empowered and amazing and, and strong and independent and so on, at the same time as they're begging for laws, a lot of them, that do their negotiating on behalf of them, right? So you have you know, equal pay for work of equal status, right? Uh, and it's like, well, wait a minute. If women are so strong and empowered, why do they need the government to force men to pay them? Uh, what mm -hmm. they want. Why don't they just go up and negotiate for themselves? And then it sort of morphed into not even just like if you're in the same category, then it just becomes for work of equal value, which is a completely subjective. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. if, if you want to know how your work is valued, put it out there in the free market and see who right. pays for it voluntarily. It's not that complicated. Right. Negotiate for more if you want it. And at some mm -hmm. point, you'll, you'll hit a ceiling. And well, this they, combination, they want, they want sorry, let me just finish. Want, so, this, okay. this combination of female empowerment, the strong independent female with a little registered trademark that you have in the books, very good, combined with running to the government every time there's a problem, it's like the kid who's a bully who then when somebody turns around and him just goes and runs to the teacher and tries to get, get someone in trouble from the hierarchy. Uh, that is to me a pretty wild combination that's very tough to, to reconcile. Well, I was going to say is that it, it comes down to them wanting an equality of outcome as per and quality of opportunity for that. And I can understand that, but even when they have the equality of opportunity, what happens? What choices do they make when they have that, that equality of opportunity? That then affects the outcome of the choices that they themselves have made. So yes, they want it both ways. They want it to be controlled on the side of, of having that opportunity, and they want it on the side of, of the outcome as well. So basically what it is is I want to get on the roller coaster and I want it to be this, this great experience for me and I want it to pop up spontaneously wherever I want it to. But I want to know that behind the scenes, there's always going to be people watching out for my best interests and they're, always, they're not going to let me fall. And you know, it's, it's like right before the car crashes into the wall, I want somebody to be able to take the wheel and turn it away from me and, and make sure that I'm okay. So I, th I think that, that, yeah, definitely comes back to women's need for security. And once again, we're going back to the hypergamous need for women to have that security side of things. So there's the, again, the, the genetic and the alpha seed side, and then there's the security side to know that their kids are going to be taken care of and they're going to be taken care of. Because, I mean, women's, you know, women's sexual market value is perishable. Once they get to a certain point, that sexual market value declines. And uh, I'm sure you've probably seen the, the graph I'm pretty, I guess I'm pretty infamous for, is, you know, noting when a woman's sexual market value is at its peak, which is what I, what I peg right around 22, 23, which is also her highest fertility window um, for today. And then, um, you know, we see men take a lot longer to become uh, as attractive as they possibly could be. So I peg that right around 34, 36 years old because it takes longer for men to, you know, get into that, uh, establish themselves socially, uh, mature-wise, uh, career-wise, um, and then still to be good-looking enough to, you know, to keep themselves in shape and to still, you know, rock the other side of hypergamy as well. Right. Now, this question has arisen to me. I want to get your thoughts on it around time horizons and deferral of gratification. So the one thing, you know, as a father like yourself, the one thing that's pretty clear is I, I can go without food. My daughter can't. 
right? You know, yeah. I, can, I can eat less and it may not actually do me much harm. In fact, it may do me some good. I can eat less and that's fine. No problem. But my daughter, you know, growing up, she needs the food or, you know, irreparable damage might occur to her entire physical ecosystem. And this need for like, you know, three hots and a cot, as they used to talk about, you know, you, this need for three meals a day for shelter, for protection and so on, I think has meant that women have a shorter horizon. Uh, of, of time oh, preferences. Yeah. And I think for men, you have to go out and you have to compete with other men. You have to take the big risks in order to get the big resources. It's win big, it's lose big, which is why men are clustered uh, at the higher levels of IQ, much more so than women, because nature gambles where there's great rewards. And I think if we sort of look at the big picture politically, women's shorter time frame has a lot to do with why they go into such terrible, useless degrees. You know, like I, I, I really, really want to take, you know, lesbian dance strategy and end up making the same amount of money as some guy who took petroleum engineering, right? I mean, and, and the, the massive amounts of personal debt, of student debt, if you look at um, the welfare state, clearly it screws the next generation enormously. Like unfunded liabilities in America are north of $180 trillion, national debt north of $20 trillion. But it's like, I have to get food into my children's mouth right now. I can't wait, whereas the man can postpone, the man can save, and, and men save more uh, than women uh, and men um, spend less on frivolities. You just go to the mall. It's all, it's all women's stores. And I think if you combine the power that the government has to transfer resources with the shorter time preferences for women, I think it's one of the things that's driven this massive welfare state, massive uh, unfunded liabilities uh, and so on. And it means that women only have to vote they don't actually have to choose a good man, and therefore the demand for male virtue goes down. Mm-hmm. Well, again, what we come back to is equality of opportunity. Well, the thing is, is you know, women want to have it all. We, we hear that all the time. You know, women want to have it all. And what that means is they want to have the same opportunities as a man. Well, the, 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 big, <laughs> the big punch in the face here <laughs> is that men and women are not not necessarily borderline functional equals, okay? Men and women are different. We just, I mean, unless of course you go to Google and then everybody's the same, right? Um, uh, no, sorry, but, <laughs> except for Republicans who are saying Exactly. <laughs> um, what I was gonna say is that um, there's a, a social narrative that wants to convince women that they can have the same opportunities that men can have. So we see we see women freezing their eggs until they can find Mr. Right to you know have a child when they're you know forty some odd years old, and there are just simple biological differences between men and women that create an unequal setting between men and women. So you're not going to have um, that as much as we want to masculinize women and as much as we want to put them as the the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, there's only so much of those to go around, first of all. And the second of all, there's only so much time a woman has to do that. Um, Just like what you were saying, I think one of the reasons that that one thing we haven't really covered here is, is menopause. Women get to a point where they become, you know, effectively unreproductive beings at some stage. So there's actually a And it's a rough transition. You know, it's, you know, they're they're sleeplessness with the baby. And then for a lot of women, there are the hot flashes, the sleep interruptions, the hormones. I mean, and it can go on for years. It is a tough, tough transition. Men are just basically this block from puberty to death. You know, let's say I have one set of hormones. I have one thing to do. My body is pretty much the same, less hair, but everything else is pretty much the same. But women go through not just monthly, but this decades long cycles of like, wow, there's a lot going on there. But we're going to we're going to try to convince women that they can have it all. We're going to try to convince women that they can have the same life experience that a man can have. And the, the simple truth is they cannot do that because of simple biological realities. Well, if they don't want to have children. Yeah, if they right. don't want to have children. And even then, they've still got to get to where, you know, where they're – you know, they're not attractive enough to they hit, hit the walls, what we call it. You know, they're going to hit the wall and not be as attractive enough to have other parts of their lives be what they think they can be later on in life. So, like, I've got a, I've got a, a post up about it's called Stalling for Time. And it's about how these women will, uh, they, for the longest time, they wanted to say that they're freezing their eggs because they wanted to advance their careers. Because, they, because it's, it's so tough in a man's world that we have to really, you know, hunker down. And, well, that means that other things have to be sacrificed. And one of those things is, is finding a good man and finding, you know, settling down and having a marriage and having a good personal life. So in order to facilitate that, we're going to go and freeze our eggs. Well, the ugly truth comes out later and says, no, 
they still, you know, now later on when these women who have frozen their eggs are getting to be 40, 45 years old, they're like, no, I simply cannot find the right guy. And so what do we do then? We hold their hands and we say, that's okay. We've got sperm banks. We've got artificial insemination. We've got programs to help you be a single mother no matter what. If you can't find the right guy, you know, it's not your fault. It's because, you know, these guys can't step up and can't do what they think. It's, it's always on those guys. But, well, and, but we're going to help sorry, you out with that. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, the egg freezing technology is not what everyone cracks it out to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you might as well just, you know, th- throw a bunch of turkey eggs in a freezer and, and hope to get real turkeys in 20 years. But um, it's not quite as cracked up. And it is funny, too, but this basic reality that motherhood requires significant investment. I mean, the very basic act of breastfeeding. I had a caller years ago on the show who was talking about what a great mom she was because she was working at a corporate job and, you know, like a couple of times a day, she'd go into the toilet with a breast pump and and like yank out the breast fluid and then freeze them and then her nanny would give it it's like do you ever think that maybe you've drifted a little bit far from the organic raising of human beings when you're like you've got a basically a robot sucking on your nipples pulling out the mom juice which you could then freeze and have another woman i mean that's just weird Mm -hmm. so if you do want to have kids you should stay home with your kids and you should raise them and you should breastfeed them for the recommended 18 months and if you're going to have another kid it's going to take you out of the workforce for years and then of course all that happens is that some other woman's going to have to take care of your kids should you go back to the workforce and people wonder like why why is the economy stopped growing it's because we're educating women who end up becoming moms and so, you know, if you have, if you need two doctors in a village and one is a man and one is a woman, and then the woman gets pregnant, you're now down one doctor. Like you could have trained two men who wouldn't have to breastfeed and be pregnant and be disabled through all of that stuff. So you're down, you, you've educated two doctors, but you only have one doctor. And mm-hmm. even when men and women are doctors, men work hundreds of hours more a year than women. So this shifting of resources towards educating women who end up dropping out of the workforce for considerable periods of time or to the detriment of their children don't, mm-hmm. you know, you can like it or not like it, but basic economics tells us that that's one of the reasons why uh, economies have slowed so much and why uh, wage growth is so slow is that the free market would allocate resources the most efficiently and training women who are going to dump out of the workforce for five or 10 years and may not even come back is simply not that economically productive. Well, I should also mention that um, we want to lower the standards for women to be in those positions to begin with. We want to make sure that we make special compensations for them to be able to breastfeed or to be able to have the time off for for pregnancy leave. Um, we want to take the uh, you know the space that men made the comp- the competitive you know nature of men and all the all of the things we put together whether it's competitive sports or if it's a business or if it's you know uh, or it's politics or anything like that we want to take that and we can go oh hold on we're going to bring we're going to lower the basketball baskets down so that you can make a basket okay and also that we can change things so that things are more woman friendly in those environments and really what that does is it i mean it doesn't it doesn't first of all it changes the game completely and then second of all it's not really it's not really a good measure of what you know what men can be and what women can be if we're doing that or if we're we're not doing ourselves any favor by like I said lowering the basketball net so that women can slam dunk well of course i mean it's very hard to resist mm-hmm. equality of opportunity combined with equality of outcome i mean because mm-hmm. equality of outcome makes you feel kind of shamed right like mm-hmm. if you don't even bother running the race but you get a participation trophy you feel kind of cheap so you do have to have the illusion of equality of opportunity but if you can also get you know, I want to be able to gamble in every casino and any casino, but I always want to win. <laughs> it's like, well, sure. I mean, of course you, everybody. And, and the fact that in Western society, by God, it seems impossible to say no to women as a whole. I mean, we have a female deferral society. And I think that comes out of the fact that arranged marriages were long gone in history and women choose men and therefore men have to please women. And this basic fact of needing to please women combined with, you know, women outvoting and outliving men in a democratic system has combined male subjugation to the preferences of women, which at a romantic level is is not too bad. But you combine that with state power to redistribute resources, largely from male taxpayers to female uh, um, consumers. Boy, you put those two things together, male deference plus state power. I mean, man alive. It is a power that corrupts uh, from top to toe. 
problem. And then you see that today with the Women's March. And you see that. I think we're seeing that a whole lot more visibly now than we were before, particularly with the, uh, you know, with the election of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. And I, I've got another post called the, the First Female President, where I kind of go into very, very similar to what you're just talking about, is that I think that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were kind of effigies, or they were kind of like placeholders for the he and the she. And what we're really seeing is we were seeing a battle between, uh, you know, the most, the biggest parody of masculinity and the big, you know, if there's a guy that you could say is the, the most easily parodied masculine alpha dude in the world, we're talking about, we're talking about Trump. Okay. And then you look at both of these, both these people have brands that go back as far as the, you know, the eighties and into the nineties. And I, I really think that it's not so much a a hatred of Trump as the person, I think it's more of a tr- hatred of the fact that the man won and that it was her turn, but yet well, he took her he, turn he, away from her. Not only did he win, but he keeps winning and he yeah. keeps <laughs> delivering more and more value, you know, literally value, like people getting thousands of dollars in bonuses and minimum wages being raised voluntarily and companies investing hundreds of billions of dollars into America and an admittedly fragile but still somewhat impressive rise in the stock market and so on. And so the fact that he said, you know, these masculine principles of, of accountability, of individuality, of borders, masculinity is required for there to be borders in a country. We know this all the way. I mean, what do the male chimpanzees do? Well, the female chimpanzees raise the kids and get some of the food, and the male chimpanzees roam around the perimeter to make sure that the borders are secure. It's the same thing with the male lions. The females hunt, and and the males make sure that no other males are coming in. So borders is a very masculine concept. This, like, open border stuff, that is a very feminine uh, concept Mm -hmm. because – in some ways, invasions are an opportunity for hypergamy with regards to women because whoever oh, wins yeah. <laughs> the fight, you know, it's like provoke the fight and then have sex with the winner. Uh, that is a primitive and brutal but not ineffective strategy for all female primates to use. And so the control that women have over the political process, uh, not just in terms of often childless men and women being in charge in particular in Europe, but uh, women um, being the group that everyone has to pander to politically is producing some, I think, seriously dangerous outcomes. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're probably a good person to ask about this because I, um, I have a, a theory here, and I believe that because of our sort of our hunter-gatherer beginnings, where men would have to go out and depend on each other on the hunt and to go out and, and bring you know back resources, technically, you know, bring back a, a kill or bring whatever. They were having to go and depend on each other. Really, that gave rise to what we presume are masculine traits or conventionally masculine traits. And then we have the women who are at home taking care of the, or the camp, you know, in tribal units, um, taking care of the kids uh, collectively, communally, taking care of the kids, uh, gathering resources themselves. Um, but having a much more um, social experience, I guess, so having a much more interdependency and a collectivist experience um, with with their kids because they depended on each other for keeping those children alive. And like you were just you were saying, if, the, if an invading tribe comes in, well, their first priority is to keep themselves alive and to keep the kids alive. And I really think that what we're seeing right now is when we put women into positions of power, and I really feel that today we're in what's called a feminine primary social order. It seems like men are running the show, but it's women who are creating the laws and who are you know, the power behind the throne kind of thing. Um, but I really think that the, one of the reasons that we see a rise in socialism and collective, collectivism today is because we have that female primary social order. Because if, we, if you give women – there's studies that they've done where it said if you give women a certain amount of money – and they have to give it out to a group, or distribute it to a group. They will distribute it evenly, as much as they can possibly do. Whereas if you give it to men, they'll go out and they'll give it by merit. And who who did the best job? And, and really, that's pretty much how male-dominated businesses are run. To, actually, pretty much all businesses are run today. It's based on merit. You do a good job, you get more pay. Um, now, you move women into that, into that male space, and the first thing that they want to do is collectivize it. And they want to make it more, seem like it is more uh, equi- a more equitable thing. So, again... Uh, equitability of opportunity and equality of outcome as well. They're trying to push into that, but they're trying to push it into a social structure that is inherently merit-based, or you could call it capitalism, and that's pretty much the base of capitalism, but it's um, a merit-based program as opposed to the um, 
the collectivist side of things. I just want to know what you men, think about yeah, it. Yeah, men, men benefit from competition and women benefit yeah. from cooperation. I mean, that's, I think, fairly clear. And uh, a man who's ostracized can still go hunt on his own and might, in fact, do better, mm-hmm. although the teamwork can sometimes be helpful for the bigger prey. But a woman who's ostracized is really doomed. Because the woman is so dependent upon the conveyor belt of resources when her children are babies and young, uh, it's really tough for her to go out and, and get her own food and get her own water, which was a long way, and you have to boil it. I mean, it's a big mess. She needs a lot of resources. So cooperation was pretty key. And I think it's not entirely accidental that if you look at um, more female-dominated cultures like Judaism, it has had significant roles in the development of, say, communism and socialism and so on, although this happens in waspy countries as well. And I do think that the children who grow up without fathers, well, they still need resources, they still need security, mm-hmm. and women simply turn to the state instead. Now, once you're dependent on the state, then you are going to really fight hard to defend state power, which is the source of your resources that you feel or perhaps do need to survive. And Mm -hmm. that is a huge thing. And I think it fundamentally changes the genetics of a society. You're taking resources from more responsible people and giving those resources to less responsible people. And we know uh, that, I'm sure you know this as well, that conscientiousness is one of the big five personality traits. It's significantly genetic. So you're actually funding the spread of irresponsible genetics at the expense of responsible genetics. And then we wonder why we end up with chaotic countries full of debt. Well, um, I'll tell you something that's kind of a, an aside story to this. But when I was um, when I was at university and I was doing uh, my work for psychology, um, I had child psychology qu- uh, classes that I had to – I think I even wrote about this in the book. But um, I, my, my favorite subject was my daughter at the time, and she was probably about you know four or five years old. And I would notice the difference between little boys – interacting with little boys and little girls acting with little girls. And it's just what you were just saying a minute ago. It's like the worst thing that can possibly happen to a little girl is that she is cast out from the group that she, and, he, and how old is your daughter? I, I, uh, you're going to get, you're going to get, oh, maybe you already dealt with this, but it's like, that's one of the reasons why we see social media being so dangerous to women right now or to young girls particularly. Um, and, you know, I really think that there needs to be sort of a regulation for that um, from fathers to their daughters right now. Um, to regulate their their chance at social media because social media is I mean if you look at the if you look at the collectivist nature of women or or you look at like uh, that that group dynamic that they have going on when they're little girls when women get to be older they're just the same little girls but they're just doing it in a different context than what they used to do before and so it's like casting out the the out member you know of your peer clutch to to you know to punish that person and then within that peer clutch attention is the coin of the realm it's it's the coin of the realm in girl world it's like how much attention that you can uh, draw to yourself is how women establish their own dominance hierarchies and so you'll see a lot of you know inner group fighting it's not really combat so much I, i always say that you know men fight out here and women fight back here you know it's always it's always a psychological type thing but um yeah, I, I, I really think that that's that collectivist nature is is definitely a, a, a an evolved genetic part of women's you know mental mental firmware. Yeah, I mean, men gain their resources through material reality, and women gain their resources through relationships. Again, these are broad generalizations, and there's lots of exceptions oh, yeah. and so on. But in general, evolutionarily speaking, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the way that it worked. And so, given that men get their resources from objective reality, the fact that men are more interested in working with objective reality, you know, computers and and engineering and physics and and math and all that kind of stuff. Well, that makes perfect sense how we evolved. Whereas because women get their resources from relationships, their relationships to men, and also their relationships with other women, because one resource is who can watch my kids while I go and do X, Y, or Z, or person, who knows, right? But um, so the fact that men are generally drawn towards more objective reality disciplines and women are more drawn towards relationship uh, disciplines or it, it, it makes perfect sense. And and none of this is funny thing is that people think this makes either gender better or worse, superior or inferior, which to me is completely incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Saying that there's inferiority or superiority between mm-hmm. genders or ethnicities or races, completely incomprehensible. I mean, it's evolution. It's like saying, mm-hmm. hey, man, I need to finish this jigsaw puzzle. There are two pieces left. They're shaped differently. Which one is better? It's like, well, you, you kind of need them both. And the fact that they're shaped mm-hmm. differently is good because mm-hmm. if they were shaped the same, you'd never be able to finish your jigsaw puzzle. So it's funny when we talk about differences, there are so many people who automatically ascribe superiority versus inferiority, which is really the essence of 
identity politics, which is like, hey, there are differences. Oh, so you're saying that one is better and one is worse. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, you know, I've got meat, I got potatoes on my, on my, which is better, which is worse, like the complimentary, you know, I'm not, yes, I'm like yes. this, it's not like, we're not like two pieces of paper that you push together, you know, one are going to go on top, one are going to go on bottom. And mm-hmm. this kind of weird thing where all differences must result in some fundamental superiority or inferiority is really horrible because it, it takes away our capacity to, to look at basic biological differences in, in bodies, mm-hmm. in mindsets, in, in the, physical brain chemistry, because the moment you point out of a difference, you're somehow a supremacist or a misogynist. And it's like, that does not even closely follow logically. Again, once again, it comes back to that. They want an equality of outcome between the two, the two genders. Um, I I get, I get in trouble for this all the time too, because I'm, I would say, you know, if you point out the difference, if you say women, uh, they're, and we can show you the I can show you the the brain scans of of women's you know synapses going you know firing left and right as opposed to front and back for men. I can show you that in black and white, and and the first thing out of someone's mouth is oh so you think that men are better than women? I'm like, no, they're different. <laughs> they're simply they're simply different. You know, and they're compliment. And the other thing is that most of the people who are doing these this research are saying funny how all of the all of the things that the man is deficient in or would be have you know deficiency in. Women make up for that. And all the things that a woman would have that, that she's deficient in, men are going to be able to make up for that too. And that's why I've always said that, you know, men and women are compliments to each other. Um, they are not the equals of each other, but they are the, uh, and, it's, and again, it's like when we're talking about equality, we also have to say, well, what is the task assigned that we're going to measure this equality by? And so when we say, you know, well, they should be, there should be just a baseline equality, this blank slate equality between men and women. And that's, again, that goes back to equality of opportunity and not equality of outcome. It's like, what are you built best to do? And, and I, I completely agree with you. I think that, uh, that men and women are complements to each other, but we have an adversarial, like, situation going on socially right now where we're want to pit the sexes against each other. And just like we were saying a little while ago, it's like, it, you know, it was her turn and he won. And so now it's no longer about, you know, what what the issues were or any of this other shit. It's like he took that opportunity away from her because everyone was so damn sure that she was going to be the president. Well, I guess uh, she hadn't cooked a whole bunch of confidential documents through her own <laughs> private email server and sold 20th percent of America's uranium yeah. to Russia. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, this question of inequality and difference is really uh, quite frustrating. And it also has something to do, I think, with the other great challenge of being any kind of public intellectual figure is, and I can hear, you know, I can read the comments in my mind scrolling by below this particular conversation, which is, oh yeah, well, I know a woman who does the exact opposite of the generalities. It's like, oh, come on. I mean, I know a tall Chinese guy. I know a short Danish guy. You know, I mean, it's, I know an albino guy in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, none of this makes any sense, but it is weird to me, but it's a male perspective and I still have a tough time Mm -hmm. understanding it. And it is fundamentally annoying because it's so factually incorrect, which is why on earth would you take a general principle supported by reason, science, biology, and evidence? Why would you take a general principle, take a personally experienced exception and think you're saying anything of any use whatsoever. Like, I just, why would you, well, in my personal experience, it's like, no, the, right. the plural of anecdote is not data. The plural mm-hmm. of your personal experience is not objective fact. And it seems like, it seems like it's not a great argument, but I'll say it anyway. It seems like the more women have moved into public intellectual and, and, and academic and educational spheres, the more you get this philosophy of feels, this, this fascism of feelings, and this mm-hmm. idea that you can establish the truth through your own personal anecdotes and think that you're talking about anything real at all? Well, I, getting back again to what we're talking about as far as us living in a uh, feminine primary social order, that's the frustration you're having right there is because over the last few generations, we've, we've acculturated men to think like women. Um, so women are going to be thinking, well, I can show you one, uh, you know, one exception to that rule, so, or, or I had an experience and that experience makes, you know, what we're talking about, the universal, you know, cosmic reality of, every, you know, of everything. Um, one of the, if, if you look in, the, I think it was the last book I wrote, um, I, I am a very strong proponent of the fact that I, I truly believe that women have a inborn, innate sense of solipsism, meaning that they're thinking about 
what is best for themselves and you know what is best for their children. But anything that is outside of that is, is either inconsequential or it's only consequential in as far as it affects them. So oh, and I just the wanted to interrupt, sorry, to very, very briefly. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention mm-hmm. that I really liked that you used the more, more neutral term solipsism rather than narcissism, yeah. which has, of course, right. a negative connotation. And I try never to ascribe moral negatives to stuff developed by evolution mm-hmm. because that's ridiculous. Right. Well, as, and, and I and I in the um, in the book, I also uh, get, say you know, solipsism is not narcissism. I try to make a differentiation between those two as well, because um, I, I honestly think that it is something that women can't really. It, it's something in the, it runs in the the hindbrain subroutines, you know, where it's like they're always thinking about themselves because they have to. Because what were they thinking about, you know, back in our hunter gatherer days? Survival. That's what you know. There's nothing more solipsistic than saying, "Oh, well, my husband's dead, and the invading tribe has just come in. I guess I love these guys, you know, because that, you know, whatever's going to be best for them, whatever's going to work for them." And so, you know, we have this collectivist side of things going when we get a bunch of women together in a group. But when we get one woman together, she is the the army of one. She whatever affects her ends up becoming the universal truth. And I think a lot of guys today are sort of picking up on that because they've been feminized, because they've they've been acculturated in a society that has taught them to think like women and to put women as their what I call the um, their uh, mental point of origin. They want to put women's thoughts and put you know what's how's this going to affect a woman before it's going to affect me or anybody else. Well, no, right? there's not even a, there's no backup position to that. I mean, you, you've yeah. got this this quote from Hillary Clinton in the book, where Hillary Clinton was basically saying, "We well, yeah, women are the real victims of war." Because, you know, women end up losing their providers. Women sometimes, do you know, Rollo, it's absolutely appalling. Okay, it's true that men get regularly dismembered, disassembled, and turned into nuclear shadows in war. But women sometimes have to move. Like they have to leave their house and sometimes go somewhere else because of war. That really, and it's sort of like, it's not even like, well, women are the real victims. They're 10, but men are 9.5. It's like women are the real victims and they Hundreds of billions of male deaths in the 20th century alone through war don't, don't exist. Right. They don't, well, don't I mean, exist. And that, that – so to me, like when you get that, just how indifferent – like female genital mutilation, illegal, immoral. Male genital mutilation, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's yeah. fine. Well, I mean does, I, I, saw, I saw a movie – I saw a movie – sorry, I think it was called Bad Moms. I saw a movie where the women were talking about how gross and unpleasant circum- uncircumcised penises were. Right. And it's like if you could imagine making a movie where men were talking about how gross and flabby unmutilated female genitals were, I mean, everybody would go insane. They would go insane. This absolute weird lack of compassion for men, the higher male suicide rates, how men get chewed up in divorce courts, um, the the massive overrepresentation of male deaths in the workforce and so on. Uh, the, the fact that, that men, uh, particularly white men, are dying sooner and sooner these days. It's the first decline in, in longevity in over a century. This massive indifference, the fact that, that, that um, boys are so ridiculously discriminated against in schools, that if you take gender off tests, boys' marks go up considerably because the female teachers just mark them down because of sexism. This, and you could go on and on, but the massive indifference to the suffering and frustration and fear of men to the point where men are afraid of dating, they're afraid of buying women a drink, they're afraid of getting married, they're afraid of becoming fathers. The entire purpose of masculinity as defined as a gender is to create and, and nurture a family. And, and that identity is being stripped from so many men, having seen these giant smoking craters of where their fathers were after the women in the courts got through with them in divorce settlements. This absolute indifference, the fact that women are taking so much money from male taxpayers uh, through the force of the government, this massive indifference to the suffering of men. And then you put that smoking crater of rampant indifference next to the idea that women are empathetic nurturers. And it's like, I'm not quite seeing the connection yeah, here as much yeah. as some people are. I know. A lot of there's, – um, there's this social mythology that women have this really supernatural empathy for you know anyone and everyone. And of course, that goes back to the mother nurturer type thing. But again, goes back to you know women's innate solipsism, like just what you're saying about the uh, the Hillary Clinton. In fact, I think I started that post out with that quote, which is you know uh, women are the primary victims of war, and it's like we it, it doesn't even occur. It's not even an afterthought that 
that what they're saying is ironic. Or, and no one's you know, saying, unsure. you yeah. can't and say no that. Like, like, no one in her circle yeah. is saying, yeah. what, are you crazy? Uh, I just, mm, yeah. Really yeah. And so it's like, well, you've, well, you've got that. so you've got this, uh, this solipsism, and you, you line that up next to like what you were saying about this, this empathy. There's supposed to be this empathy, but there's not really. This so it becomes this kind of paradox for them. Um, but the other thing, and not to go to MRA on you here, is that, you know, what's the, the suicide rate of men to women is five times the rate of women. But we don't we don't have a special month for that. We have we have breast cancer month, but we don't have, you know, men are killing themselves month. <laughs> Where, prostate where's the cancer prostate month. cancer month? Yeah. yeah, we don't we don't have anything like that. Yeah. And of course, then that what 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 do they say? Well, you guys should do it yourself. How come, how come men aren't doing it? Well, you know, how are we supposed to? We're we're disposable. We're not supposed to do that kind of stuff. We're supposed to be tough, right? We're supposed to we're supposed to be the guys that are you know taking on the chin and, and yeah. Come back well, to war excuse me, but and, fuck that uh, perspective. That really pisses <laughs> me off. No, because listen, you say, well, why don't why don't men get together and organize? I'll tell you why they don't mm-hmm. fucking get together and organize is because when I spoke at a men's rights conference in Detroit, I spoke under threats of violence, of bombs being placed in the venue. Uh, I, I spoke with uh, fears of riots. And, and it's like trying to get together as conservatives at, at liberal universities. Say, well, why don't you do it more? It's like, I don't know. Why didn't you ask the blacks in 1850 why did they didn't organize unions? It's like because they faced overwhelming violence if they tried. So mm-hmm. don't give me this, oh, men should just, just get up and do it. It's like, come on. Perhaps if well, you I, looked at the amount of violence, anytime men publicly try to express any kind of in-group preference. Woo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, again, and if, if men get together, there's always this suspicion of them being homosexual or they're crying about something that they shouldn't be crying about because we all know men run the world, right? But that, you know, and it's the same presumptions of, of male power when there's really no male power to it. So it's, it's okay if you're homosexual and you get together and you want to have a parade, but if you're if your guys getting together, you know, for a weekend in Orlando, well, maybe that's not, you know, you're not going to have you're not going to have the same level of acceptance to that as as you would because they think that's dangerous. Well, honestly of think, course, yeah. I honestly think that get, get, men getting together, they're definitely afraid of men banding together, like just like the sisterhood. I mean, I would say that the women are they they put the sisterhood above everything else. I call it the sisterhood uberalis. Okay. That means that if you take if you take Rachel Maddow and you take Gretchen Carlson or some other you know conservative you know woman uh, on on TV right now and you put them together in the same show and you said you start talking politics, they're gonna fight like cats and dogs. But if you put me on there, you put you on there, and we start talking about what we've been talking about for the last hour here, they're going to band together, they're going to close ranks, and they're going to talk about what a son of a bitch you and I really are. Well, see, we're, we're not allowed to get angry. Of course. Mm-hmm. The, the livestock are not allowed to charge the fence. That's bad for the farmer. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you there's the old saying that says if you want to know – Who's really in charge? Just look at who you're not allowed to criticize, and you're not allowed to criticize women, or you're a woman hater. But you can bitch about men all day long, and you're not a misinterest. And if you ever want to know who's really enslaved, look at who's never allowed to get angry. Mm-hmm. And in particular, it's white males. You're just not allowed to have an in-group preference, and you're sure as hell not allowed to get angry, which makes perfect sense when you realize that we are generally the taxpaying livestock that keep the whole damn system afloat for the time being. So the idea that we would band together, that we would have solidarity. Yeah, two men who enjoy each other's company. It's a bromance. Can you imagine mm-hmm. that you had, you know, two, every time the girls went out, it's a, you think it's a lesbian love orgy? I mean, it would just be so disrespectful. But of course, men can't band together. They can't talk together. They can't share wisdom painfully accumulated over the last couple of decades, if not the last few thousands of years. They can't talk about some of the biological realities of female nature. They can't commiserate about how hard done by they are in society. Because we're told that we're in charge, but I'll tell you, men are pretty competent. We did build pretty much an entire civilization that's the greatest, at least for the moment, in the history of the world. If we really were in charge, I don't think we'd design system, a system that would kill us off, that would uh, emasculate our sons uh, and inflate the egos of our daughters. I don't think we would design a system where we ended up paying tens of thousands of dollars a year in taxes to irresponsible women. I don't think we would design any of this kind of system. I don't think we'd design a system of these family courts where a woman can just make a phone call and destroy your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- there's no way that if men were actually in charge that any of this and we would not be criticized. We would not, I mean, if, if we didn't value free speech, right, if we were just like the nasty, evil patriarchs, then there would be laws against criticizing men and there would be massive groups of men who would get out and protest against all of the endlessly negative portrayals of idiot men in the media. We would just go completely crazy on this stuff and none of this happens and yet still 
magically we're just in charge of everything. Yeah, yeah. We're we're the we're the secret. Uh, the secret power behind the throne is really is really women and not us. <laughs> um, what I was gonna say is that um, when I was last September, we we have a I went to a conference called the Twenty One Con- uh, Convention, and uh, it was the first time I ever experienced something like that. Uh, I have never. Um, I, I don't do public. Spe- I know, like I said, I've got an. I'm, this isn't my real life. I mean, I don't do this for a living. I have, I have other things that I do for my, you know, as as part of my job. But to go out there and to to meet these guys and to share this experience, right? It it was really, it was really eye opening, especially what you're just talking about right now. Because you know, when you get guys together like that, there's always going to be that risk of that ostracism, or somebody's going to pull a fire alarm, or somebody's going to, you know, I I have every I have every expectancy that there's going to end up being some sort of protest at the next one that we do, because this last one is, it just was too good for the, for it to be left alone. Or, or there's going to be some craptastic reporter who's going to be out there and distort it all yeah. as a sort of neo-Nazi rally, or there's going to be photos published and you're going to get doxxed or yeah, people, I mean, people who are not groundbreaking in this essential realm. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't know. I mean, you don't know. Just just try. Try LARPing as somebody who talks about these issues uh, for, for a little while and mm-hmm. see what kind of response you get. And then then tell me all about the patriarchy. It'll be fascinating to hear. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, I really, really appreciate your time. I wanted to sure. uh, recommend the website, therationalmail.com, twitter.com forward slash rationalmail. The books are The Rational Mail, The Rational Mail Preventive Medicine, and The Rational Mail Positive masculinity. I look forward to your comments below. It's been a while since we've dipped into these. I've dipped into these issues. So I look forward to your feedback. Uh, Rolo Tomasi, T-O-M-A-S-S-I. You want to look him up and and follow his uh, excellent talks and so on. Thanks, my friend, for the time today. I greatly appreciate the the conversation. Thanks.